Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Neem Tran, and my book is We're Safe When We're Alone. Wichita, Kansas native Neem Tran has just released his debut novella titled We're Safe When We're Alone. It follows son and father as they navigate a world surrounded by ghosts. Son struggles to fit in with these ghosts, electing instead to stay within the safety of the mansion he lives in, but he can't remain in his safe haven forever. I recently spoke with Neem Tran about the challenges of cultural assimilation for both himself and his characters, how he crafted the book as a fable, and how writing inspired him to reflect on his own immigration story. From KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. Could you give our listeners a brief description of We're Safe When We're Alone? Mm-hmm. It's a coming-of-age tale set in the afterlife about these two entities, son and father, who believe they are the only humans in a purgatory world surrounded by ghosts. And son has lived inside a mansion his entire life. And the book is about his experiences leaving the mansion for the first time and trying to understand the world around him. You know, the very first line of the book, I've lived in the mansion my whole life. It immediately brought forth, in my mind, we have always lived in the castle. And then I read in an article that you were inspired by Shirley Jackson. Talk to me about this. Yes, I'm so happy that that led to that reference. I was in my third year of my MFA program, and I was focusing mainly on poetry at the time. But for some reason, I read that book and After the last line in that book, an image just popped into my head of a a little boy running through a hallway and the walls were shaking and I just was completely transfixed by this image and I felt like I had to write about him. And for some reason, when I asked myself what he was so scared of, I immediately thought that he was the only human in a world of ghosts. I rarely read jacket copy before I dive into a book, but for some reason this was like, it was upside down and I even underlined it here. The advanced copy describes like what you've done with this novella as inverting the haunted house tale. Talk to me about that idea. I think in in other stories, when someone arrives in a haunted house, they start to lose their identity. They start to really question themselves and who they are. But for my narrator, I actually wanted him to cling on to the haunted house. I wanted him, I wanted the haunted house to be a way to fortify his identity. So he became more confident and he became just more happy whenever he was in the house. And it was actually the outside world that brought him a lot of pain and a lot of harm. And this idea came about, I think, because um, I wrote this using my experiences as an immigrant in Kansas. The book is clearly not autobiographical, but 
Um, it drew on a lot because I came to Kansas when I was seven, and we didn't know a lot of Vietnamese people, and so I was just, the house was my safe spot because I, I didn't have to um, interact with the world. But of course, you have to. And um, when I was thrust into American schools or American society, it was a very hectic time because I, I just didn't know English and there was no one to help me along. I had to just do it on my own. And Kansas felt very ghostly just because I couldn't understand anyone. I was just expected to on my own learn how to interact with the world. And so I used that experience to write this book where whenever Sun has to leave the haunted house, he has to interact with these ghosts that he just um, feel are so different from him. Well, I find that fascinating. I mean, English is not your first language, yet you've penned this novella in English. Talk to me about that experience, about penning this novel in English when it is not your first language. Yes, um, so the language in this novella is I keep it very simple and I keep it very spare. I think I think mainly because um, it is my second language and I wanted I wanted it to be accessible and I wanted to to be able to control it. When I was a kid, actually the desperation to learn English and to understand to assimilate was just so intense. I actually I, I don't know Vietnamese anymore. I completely and my parents speak Vietnamese mainly. They speak a little English, but it was such an intense time. So now I actually can't even communicate with my parents that much anymore because I was so desperate to assimilate. And so now whenever I, um, I write in English, it's a very complicated act just because um, by writing in English, I do feel remove. I do feel isolated from it, but it actually, I don't mind that feeling. I don't mind the alienation that I feel when I write in English because it it makes me feel more connected to my childhood and it makes me feel more connected to those difficult experiences early on um, when, when I had to interact. Um, so the fact now that I'm able to, to write a whole story, to write a whole, a very long story, in English, it's alienating, but at the same time, I've, it makes me very proud of myself that I've gone this far, that I'm able to use English for my own purposes in this way. Whereas in the past, when I was a child, English was very much a source of terror. Many of the characters in this book were ghosts. Some were described as, you know, quote, always in some act of nurturing, simulating innocence without a hint of threat in their actions. Others, particularly children, felt like terrors a little bit. They were cruel in their playground games, and I think I let out an audible gasp when pages were being torn from books. So talk to me about how you, as the creator of these characters, of these beings, how do you assign personality to magical or otherworldly beings? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think that was um, one big reasons why I made them ghosts and not humans was so that I could... I can make them caricatures, um, and I could give them very extreme qualities of human beings um, and hiding a certain emotion. And so, yeah, so when I was a child and I didn't know English, it was hard to me to see other people as just uh, fully dimensional human beings. And I also think that's just a matter of being very young. Um, I saw other people as these caricatures, and um, they were 
they were the embodiment of one specific characteristic instead of having a whole range. And the consequence was that was um, I just felt so much dread because when I was a child, other children who spoke other languages, who understood American life better than I did, they and other adults too, they were um, they were just the manifestations of my my fear and my terrors. And so the kids in this novel, um, they. Everything they do, everything they say, Sun interprets it as straining to him. And he is unable, just because of his fear um, of of the outside world, of communities, um, he can only see the cruelty of their acts. And even when they do, or even when they are kind, he blocks that out and instead see the harshness. And that's... Um, and I intentionally wanted him to be very close-minded in that sense, just because he is a, a scared little kid. And eventually, throughout the novella, he starts to see the he starts to see the ghosts as more human, and he sees that they are more than just their than his fears and cruelty. You know, very few of the characters in the book have names. I mean, you have father and son. You have father's friend, you have madame, all with, you know, initial capitalization with that look of a proper noun. And then we have Marie and Joe and Augustus. So talk to me about the power of a name and what not having a name can do for a story. Mm -hmm. So the ghosts I do choose to name, I think they are the ones that the narrator actually, he learns their backstory more. He learns what their life is like in the human world. And he tries his best to empathize with them. And so I do think naming is a way for him when he does choose to name someone or he tries to see them as more than as more than just ghosts and tries to see them as human. But for himself and for actually the people he is closest to, he won't give a name. And I think in a way maybe it's because it brings him a lot of pain to to give the people he's closest to names because a lot of the book is about, I think, the fear that the people you love will let you down, the fear that the people you, in this case, his father, won't be able to protect him. And so in order to distance himself from that pain in a way, um, he never fully gives uh, his father a name or gives himself even a, a real name. You know, to that end, the vague location and point in time gives this a feeling of a fable. Talk to me about writing through this style rather than, you know, rather than assigning clear-cut identity and setting. I mean, some of the aspects felt of this world, like the canned goods and the and the cereal and boxes and even the ultrasound machine. But then others felt much more timeless. Was it difficult to shift back and forth between these two, like, headspaces as you were writing? Oh, well, um... So it wasn't as difficult to switch between because um, the things that he does choose to be timely about are very inconsequential. Um, he, I think I, I wanted to remain in a fable mode and um, because in a way, um, the reason why I, I have a hard time writing autobiographically and I prefer to stay in a more fable mode is just because more specific details just feel more painful. And it, this is just me as a writer. I, uh, 
so much of this during my experiences and um, those specific experiences when I was younger um, as an immigrant are just so painful to me and are just a little too personal that I have to really distance myself from them. And and so in the book, uh, there are almost, yeah, I, I don't really name anything. I keep the location vague as just a way for me to instead focus on heightening the atmosphere of dread and capturing an atmosphere of terror without actually um, putting myself through that pain. Um, yeah. I want to talk a bit about the father-son bond because there's a point when the traditional roles flip and son takes care of the father who is unable or perhaps unwilling to care for himself. Talk to me about their relationship and how it evolves through the course of the book. Yes, yeah, so... Um, in the beginning, of son really sees father as almost like a god because he he does have this job, this role in the in this purgatory world where he is able to maintain a balance, a stability in the world. Um, and you learn later on what he what his ability is. And so, son is actually really he's completely satisfied with his time being isolated and being alone as long as he has the protection from father. And uh, a lot of the book is about the fact that that relationship is not sustainable. Um, Parents ultimately, of course, are human too. And eventually, children do have to realize that their parents are not always going to protect them. And so that is really the catalyst. But also at the same time, the incredible difficulty as a child of believing this fact. And Sun, throughout the, um, the novella, constantly tries to deny this reality that maybe his father is not able to protect him, is not as strong as he can. And and so there are many situations where I put the father in a very, in a weak position just to help Sun understand and so a lot of the novella is me, the author, battling against my narrator, trying to help him understand that, you know, you, you are going to have to be on your own eventually. And, and my narrator resisting that and saying that, no, my father is always going to be strong and is always going to help me. My mind is struggling to name a single one of these stories, but it feels like so many myths and, and epics feature a river that must be crossed <laughs> to, get, to get to the underworld. Do you have a favorite of any of these stories that I cannot name? <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't want to <laughs> be too um, pointed, but uh, uh, the, it does. It, I drew on a lot of Greek myths in order to build this afterlife. And um, I was specifically thinking of Orpheus and Eurydice because... <laughs> Because there is a big question of if they are humans, how on earth did they get into the afterlife? And so I drew on that myth. And I was curious because the myth always interested me just because why did Orpheus look back um, even when he knows rationally, he knows that he shouldn't be looking back and yet he does. And so I, I love it when characters act irrationally. I love when they act against their best interests out of emotion. So Sun has that. He's very irrational and very emotional. And so I try to understand the emotional logic behind why someone would look back 
um, even when they know that looking back will hurt them. I feel like this book is such a transformative story. By the end, everything has changed, and I wonder if writing this transformed any part of you as well. Was it was it a therapeutic experience? In a way, I I I think by making this a fable, it to me it actually transformed my relationship to my personal experience, where I you know I struggle so much with my immigrant experience and I saw it as so painful but but by using those experiences to create a myth to create this fable um, it actually I found it started to make me believe that my personal experience were magical too even though it's <laughs> it's a very mundane life I had going to school in Kansas but I, after I finished the book as I was writing it it just really made me feel like I had a truly magical and unique experience as a child that I cherish. And now I find, you know, Kansas is very much dear to my heart now. And it, and I really appreciate my experience having grown up in Wichita um, by writing this book because it, I feel like it did give me a very a special experience I wouldn't have otherwise, even though it was difficult. But I think the difficulties is what has made my heart more fond of the past. Do you have a hope for what readers will take away from the book? To be honest, readers have had such different interpretations. <laughs> there have been so many um, different interpretations, and it's it's a it's a short book. It's um it's a short novella, but the range of uh, interpretations have really astonished me, and I'm very happy about that. I'm always happy to hear people are constantly surprising me about their interpretations. But I think um, my hope um, is is just, I think it's just to be kinder to the people you love or the people who are close to you, and to be not so afraid of their flaws, um, and to have more patience with the people around you is all that's, I'm always telling myself to because um even if they I think even if our loved ones hurt us you know they they've still gone through so much with us and I think that's why I, I I hope readers finish this and feel I feel a little more fondness uh, for the people who mean a lot to them in their lives this is your first novella, but you've had a few poems and some short fiction published in various literary magazines. Do you prefer one form over another? I I do. It, it It's changed so much. I do prefer writing in a long form now just because I need so much time. I, I need so much space to develop um, all these ideas. But um, my main love has to be poetry. That's what I did my MFA in, and um, it's really, I think, because poetry, they deliver such strong images with such strong emotions, and there's a poem by Jane Kenyon called Having It with Melancholy, and um, there's a, and in the poem, there's this river of light, and the narrator talks about how when she was in her, the speaker, when she was in her 30s, she felt such happiness like she never felt before, and she described it as being a part of this river of light connected to people from the past, people who haven't been born yet, and people who are still living. And so, and it was, it made me so emotional that I, 
that that Im- the image of the river like popped up into my head when I was writing this novella, and I had to incorporate it. And so poetry still <laughs> poetry still affects all my writing with the kind of emotions it can conjure through images. So what's next for you? Are you working on anything? I, I'm, I, I am writing. Um, this novella is very different from anything I've written because I, 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 right now I'm, um, I love writing psychological intense stories. So right now I'm writing about this, um, this dating show where two of the contestants are AI machines, but they act so human that you can't, that none of the contestants can tell, and so they're worried if they're falling in love with a robot or a human. And so it's, again, it's very much, um, I think a lot of my work just revolves around human relationships, human bonds. How do we know if what we have with each other is a genuine relationship? (laughs) That was Neem Tran, author of the book, We're Safe When We're Alone, which was published by Coffeehouse Press. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning. And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.